Good morning, everyone. Uh, as a reminder, for those of you who are here on Monday, my name is Rusty Hawkins, and I'm uh, a professor of history and humanities here at Indiana Wesleyan, and I was the guy on Monday morning who stood here and promised you a completely unique uh, experience in chapel if you were to come back today, something that had never happened before. I actually promised you that we'd make history together. I don't think I actually said those words, but that was implied that we'd make history together, and we're about to do that here in a few minutes. But before I do that, I want to kind of give you an overview um, before we do that, I want to give you an overview about what's going to happen today and, and why we're doing that. It, would it be possible just to turn on all the chapel lights, even like the ones like underneath there, so we can all see each other today? Um, yeah. <laughs> Step one in making history. Yeah, look at that. Almost we're getting there. I think there's some more lights under the overhang. So... Three times a week, we get together here in chapel, and we hear from people who challenge us to think differently, live differently, see the world in a different way, love God in deeper ways. And if we're lucky, occasionally we'll have speakers that make such an impact that we continue to talk about them over lunch. Or if they're really powerful, that might even last into our afternoon classes. But more often than not, someone will speak in chapel, and by that evening, we've kind of just moved on with our life, and there's, there's uh, nothing left to, to think about or, or to, to chew on. We're just done with it. And so a couple of years ago, when we um, started having Luther Lee lectures speak in chapel, we asked Dr. Bray if we could have two chapels, one chapel to hear from the speakers, and then one chapel to kind of debrief together as a community about what we heard and, and ponder for just a a bit longer, uh, the, the message that, that they brought to us. So that gets us to the uniqueness of chapel today and how that's going to be different from previous debriefs that have happened in our community after a Lutherly lecture. But to get to how today is different, I want to start off with a story, um, Once Upon a Time. All good stories start with Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time, I was a college undergraduate um, at an institution that required us to go to chapel three times a week. Crazy, you couldn't believe it. Three times a week we had to go to chapel. And during these three times a week, uh, we would gather together for corporate worship and we would sing and we would pray. And then we would always be met with uh, someone who was speaking to us about loving God deeply. And these pastors and these professors and these poets and these musicians and these writers and these scholars and these activists, a whole host of people were paraded across these, this chapel stage and pushed us to love God not just with our heart and with our soul, but also with our mind. And it turned out over time that this chapel experience was incredibly formative to me. In fact, I, I will confess this to you as a professor at a university today. I remember much more about my undergraduate chapel experiences than I do about my undergraduate classroom experiences. This is part of the reason why more often than not, I sit over there with my chapel buddy three times a week because I, I have become to understand that this time that we have together is a gift and the work that Dr. Bray and, and Jennifer do three times a week for us is, is a gift for us. Okay, all that to say, there were two times in particular each year at this undergraduate institution of mine that chapel was especially exciting. We would come in to chapel these two days a week, once in the fall, once in the spring, and there would be microphones on the floor of the chapel. Microphones like, like 
oh, that microphone right there, and that microphone right there, they would be on the floor of the chapel, and that was an indication that on this day, there was no script for chapel. It was a town hall chapel, and the script for the day was going to be whatever the students made the script to be that day. The only person on the platform that day would be the university president, the, the college president, and students could get up and ask a question to that college president. And, and so a couple weeks ago, we were talking to Dr. Bray and we said, hey, what if, what if when we were debriefing Luther Lee this year, what if we had a town hall chapel? What if we didn't get questions ahead of time and vet them? What if we didn't ask people to tweet in questions? What if we just went completely unscripted and allowed students to get up, come down to a microphone and ask whatever question they wanted to? And Dr. Bray, good golly, he said, sure, let's do it. Which sounded like a great idea two weeks ago, but this morning at 4 o'clock when I wake up, this was a stupid idea. Why, why did we think this would be a good idea? The good news is I'm not the one that has to answer the questions that you all have today. I just get to moderate. And so the real key was to finding five individuals who are crazy enough to agree to be on this unscripted panel. And I want to bring them up now and introduce them to you before we uh, allow you to come down and just ask questions about what you heard on Monday, either here in chapel or Monday night at the Luther Lee Lecture. So if our panelists could come up, can you welcome them? Give them a round of applause. Let me introduce you to our five panelists today and uh, give you a little bit of information about who they are and why they agreed to serve on the panel. We'll begin with uh, Mr. Andrew Sprock here in the end, on the, on the right, my right. Andrew Sprock is the executive director of Circles of Grant County, a nonprofit organization that operates here in Marion. The mission of Circles is to empower families to overcome poverty and equip our community to address the systems that perpetuate poverty. And when he's not directing Circles, he's a stay-at-home dad with his three kids. Was there a slide? There's no slide. Okay, there was a slide. All right, Andrew Sprock. Ms. Kelly Engelman down here um, is, is the community coordinator for the Affordable Housing and Community Development Corporation that works in downtown Marion. She assists in managing over 100 housing units here in Marion and has spent years listening to the neighbors' desires for their neighborhood, and as a result of this, has helped with the construction and building of hundreds of new affordable housing in our community. She's helped assist building pocket parks in our community, and the Flying Tomato, a community garden that operates uh, off of Boot Streets in downtown Marion, is now in its seventh year of operation. And as an added bonus, um, Kelly is a 2011 graduate of this fine institution with a social work major. Uh, and is back today at her alma mater. So please welcome Ms. Kelly Engelman. <laughs> Dr. Brian Fry, right here in the middle, is. <laughs> Dr. Fry is a sociology professor here at Indiana Wesleyan. He teaches minority group relations and principles of sociology, and he lives on the finest street in Marion with his wife, Jody, and six kids. Dr. Tom Lehman is professor of economics at Indiana Wesleyan University and has research interests and teaching interests in the areas of urban economics, urban housing markets, and income inequality. 
and he has served as a board member with the local Grant County Economic Growth Council here in Marion as well, Dr. Tom Lehman. And finally, we have Dr. Amanda Drury, an associate professor of practical theology. Sorry, I stepped in your applause. An associate professor of practical theology in the School of Theology Ministry here at Indiana Wesleyan. When she's not teaching and, and uh, instructing students in practical theology, uh, Dr. Drury also found the time to um, found and oversee the Brain Kitchen here in Marion, an after-school program to help elementary-age students with their homework, get physical activity, and learn how to cook. So our panel, our brave panel today, So I am going to go ahead at this time, with much fear and trembling, um, invite folks to come down to these two microphones that we have on the floor here. What we're going to do, if at all possible, if we could just go ahead and, and, and line up behind these microphones so we don't have the, the, the times of, of crickets that, that happen um, in unscripted events like this. And we'll pray that the Lord sends bold and, oh, Peter Troutner, Kobe Booth. <laughs> Bold messengers. But before we get to these questions, um, let me go ahead, because I, I realize that some of you were not in chapel on Monday. Some of you are visiting. Some of you weren't here. Some of you have no idea. Some of you were here and don't have any idea what happened in chapel. So let me just give a very, very brief recap. On, on Monday in chapel, we had the great privilege of hearing from a MacArthur genius who's a New York Times bestselling author and a Harvard sociologist a man named Matthew Desmond, but more than any of those things, he's also a, a follower of Christ. And Matt Desmond was, was here with us on Monday, and he said that he wanted to challenge us to think about how we should see those in poverty. He wanted to challenge us as how we as Christians should think about poverty, and he wanted to challenge us to think about what our response as Christians should be to poverty in the United States today. His, his first point was that if we truly call ourselves followers of Christ, that we have to understand that addressing poverty is not an issue, an extracurricular issue for those who are interested in social justice. But instead, he said that, that addressing poverty is, is central. It's core to the gospel. It's core to who we should be as followers of Christ. Matt said that um, one of the key steps in thinking about how we address poverty is not to think about redesigning it or not to think about necessarily um, how we rethink the problem of poverty. He said, maybe the first goal as Christians when it comes to poverty is to learn how to hate poverty more. He said, God hates poverty. And we as Christians should hate poverty. And he said, one of the ways we can do this is, is to wrap our lives up with the lives of the poor. If we experience poverty, maybe that's a way that we can we can um, begin to hate poverty. And we do this, wrap our, our lives up to the poor, Matt said, not just for the sake of the poor, but also for the sake of the non-poor. Matt Desmond made this claim. He said, it's much harder to experience a deep faith and communion with God when our stomachs are always full and our streets are always safe, which seems to run counter to, to notions of the American dream. Matt also encouraged us at the very end of chapel to turn off that voice in our head saying, all right, poverty, schmoverty, social justice, this, this isn't for me. He said, we all have a role to play. That it's a big table and we need a lot of people to sit around it. 
Whatever role we decide to go into, he said we can all do our part. This could be at personal decisions about where we live, where we spend our money, how we spend our money, where we send our kids to school, or this could be larger policy decisions. Who do we vote for? What policies do we support? What are the things we care about? He said we all have a, have a role to play. So that's a brief recap about what happened in chapel on Monday. I will say that as we open up to questions here, I would encourage you just to limit your questions to the chapel on Monday or what happened on Monday night. I think there's a critical mass of us on the panel that were there on Monday night that could also speak to that. So please don't go outside of that. Um, this is a panel of experts to, to talk about what Matt Desmond was here talking about on Monday. So Peter, I saw you stand up first. Can we go to you and then we'll just go back and, back and forth. If people refuse to be defined by their hardships, according to Desmond in Chapel on Monday, how can we enact change that does not label according to hardships, but comes across as helping for reconciliation between our created and structured groups, whether that be racial or economic or other things? So it, it sounds like you're asking, uh, how, do we, how do we help or get involved in a in addressing poverty when people don't want to be defined by their circumstances. We're not, they're not wanting to just be known as the poor people. This, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Great. All right. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that, that's a challenge. Um, so I'm, I'm working with, with the Brain Kitchen, and we've got uh, after-school kids coming in. Oftentimes, they're from lower-income families. And we'll have uh, news organizations that want to come in and tell a story about us. But the story they want to tell is the story of, oh, these poor kids that we have to come in and help. And they've got these horrible conditions and this and that. And quite honestly, that's a story that will sell papers. It will get people to donate money. But that's not the story we want to tell because that's not the whole truth. Uh, it's easy to tell the story of, oh, these, these poor people, they've got a horrible life, they've got, these kids have parents that don't love them, but that's not the whole story. So uh, one thing that we've been committed to is making sure that the stories of poverty that we do tell are still offering dignity in the moment. So I want to describe the brain kitchen in a way that uh, the parents of these kids won't be embarrassed to send their kid there because, well, I can't provide for them at home, so I send them, I send them here. Uh, so making sure that when we are engaged in, in conditions of poverty, that we're doing so in a way that is offering dignity, that, uh, that we are speaking about other people in a similar way that we would want ourselves to be spoken of. I'd, I'd like to add to that just to say, I, I feel like in some ways struggle has really defined me and defined our family. And I don't think there needs to be, how do we honor people's story and own our own struggle in it too? It's not as much about trying to paint somebody else's struggle with a different color or more colorfully, but how do we enter in with them recognizing our own struggle? And I think poverty is uh, a powerlessness to change your situation on your own. And if we define it that way, then we all have poverty. We all have a powerlessness to change something. What is it that we hope for and long for and is not yet there? That's our poverty. That's something we can't change on our own. And if we enter into relationship with others who are trying to change their situation but are powerless to do it on their own, recognizing our own poverty, then that changes the way in which we interact with them. So certainly I'm not completely defined by this, my struggle, but we all are shaped by those in ways. And when we own that, then we can connect with somebody else in the midst of their struggle in a really different way. 
So something that I've always focused on in my work, um, I will take on the project that nobody wants to take. So ways I meet people, it's not focused on the poverty. Um, I'll go down uh, Boot Street, 14th Street, and I'll start shoveling a walk that um, we own that needs shoveled, but I mean, someone else is gonna do it, but I'll do it so that someone else can walk outside, someone that's living in poverty, and they can have a conversation with me about why are you doing this, and I can share that, or um, the community garden that was mentioned. Okay, I'm gonna show up, and I'm gonna get my hands dirty right next to other people, and during that time, I'm gonna be able to share life with them, and I have no idea where the conversation's gonna go, but just as Andrew said, the struggles, okay, my struggles will come up too, and we'll love each other. Um, like when I came, I was gone for two years and I came back and there was a lady that um, I shared life with before and I came back and the first thing she started telling me about was how she struggled with cancer while I was gone. And so she was talking about all the different pieces of that and I got to enter into that with her and it, it wasn't about money or it wasn't about a need. I mean, it was just about her life. And if you don't put the stamp of poverty on people, well, that's not who they are. I mean... Marion's population, I have found people that are more generous. I mean, there's a gentleman that if I had a need, I would call, and he doesn't have a back window on his truck. But he would show up in a heartbeat for anything. And so the relationship isn't based on taking someone out of poverty. It's based on loving people. And in doing so, you walk with them and help fill their needs and help push them and empower them forward. And both of your lives are changed. Can I move us to, uh, to, yeah. to the next question? Cool. Um, so Matthew Desmond mentioned on Monday that intimacy with people who are poor is a great blessing. Uh, he built this intimacy primarily by living with them, sometimes for years. And I would say living with people is one of the best ways to build intimacy with them. Uh, but since it is Indiana Wesleyan's policy to not allow its students to live off campus, how do you suggest we build intimacy with people in poverty? <laughs> So there's an excellent website called Serve Grant County, and if you jump on there, there's no need to live off campus. You can walk down the streets and volunteer and get involved in people's lives. There's a lot, it sounds good to say living off campus would change things, but um, unless you're intentional about living off campus and getting to know your neighbors, you can come and go and do as you please and have all the freedom that sounds good without ever meeting anyone around you. And um, so, something nice about downtown Marion is people still have porches and they still go out on their porches so you can meet people. But I found that um, when I lived, I lived off campus because I was, I, I transferred in. So I was 22 and that was allowed. And I didn't meet anyone on Cary Street because people didn't come out and talk. I mean, even the people upstairs weren't interested in engaging. So unless you're focused I got turned off. Uh, oh, <laughs> Whew, that was bad, huh? No, and, unless you're focused on engaging and that is your purpose, that won't happen. So Serve Grant County is um, an excellent way. Um, there's ideas all over the place of actually meeting people in the area and getting to know them. I love that question. I see what you did with that there, uh, Kobe. 
Hopefully. I will say that, that this Monday night, last Monday night when, when Matt, was, Matt was speaking, we had five kids on campus, third and fourth graders, from um, Allen Elementary School, the north side of town. We had five kids. I don't know how they got here. They're just kind of wandering around campus. They, they latched onto a, a Aaron Murray, basketball player here that they, rec that they recognized. And one of them told Aaron, we haven't had anything to eat yet today. Okay, this is Monday evening. They're here on campus. It's their spring break. Uh, these these young, young kids happen to get their, their breakfast and lunches at school. So uh, the fact that they're on spring break made, made food a little bit tricky. Well, you can imagine what Aaron did. He took them all over to Wildcat, got them, got them something to eat. So I bring that up to say, keep your eyes open. Uh, Keep your eyes open because you might be surprised by the people that are coming into your life, even when you're not necessarily walking into theirs, who, who God has placed there for a particular reason. I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. I don't, I, I don't know how to... I'm not going to worry about, I guess, the implications. So if you don't see me next year, you'll know what happened. <laughs> uh, my wife and I and our family moved on to 6th Street uh, three years ago. We used to live in Sweetser. That's such a long story. I won't get into it. But one of the things that I've learned is that when we are living in a neighborhood where there's a lot of needs, the needs just come to you. Whereas when we lived in Sweetser, if we wanted to serve the kids, we had to volunteer. Whereas people literally, just like Monday night, I got back from uh, Matthew Desmond's talk. 20 minutes later, a guy says, I know I mowed your lawn before. Uh, I prayed that God would help me tonight. I saw your light on. That kind of stuff doesn't happen a lot, but it happens with regularity. What's the point? I, I think there's all kinds of options. It's not an either or, but I love the bubble. I really do. There's a place for comfort and safety and security, but comfort is not our friend when it comes to becoming more like Christ. The kind of transformation that happens is largely, I think, through spiritual disciplines, but also just daily acceptance of what is coming to us, being present to it, that kind of thing. What's the point? I know some students who uh, have been talking with my wife and they're going to move into uh, Marion, and it's out of a heart to serve. They feel like God continues to make impressions on their lives that they're supposed to stay. Uh, and that means they're gonna live in the neighborhood. They're gonna leave the university. And I know that's kind of been taken away. So I would like to see uh, the university reconsider that, frankly. Doesn't mean it's for everybody. You can put some parameters around it, do things with uh, prudence and do it judiciously. But I think if we really want to, say, serve the poor, I don't think there's many more effective ways to do it and to learn than to be there. So we've seemed to reach the general consensus that a more perfect community is the answer to poverty. But such a community can be intimidating to those who need help, especially considering the heavy religious associations. 
So how do we respond to those in need who do not desire to join these efforts? How do we respond to those who do not want to be helped? Good question. Well, I, th I think, again, we have to show up recognizing that the ideal community is a reciprocal relationship. There's not a label on helped and helper, but we're all both in that kind of community. Um, and yes, there are people that aren't ready to enter into that. And, and uh, you know, even one of Jesus's statements in the process of healing was to ask, do you want to be healed? And so uh, I think our job is to engage where people are ready and willing to engage. And I don't think we need to exhaust ourselves or spend our energy on, on efforts when, it's, when there's not a willingness to enter into a reciprocal relationship. So to that, again, it has to be our own posture in this. We're not, I think a lot of people don't want to be a project and they don't want to be only the helped. And so they're not going to enter in. That's a different kind of problem. Um, but if we are willing to enter in as both one who's willing to be transformed and engage in others in the midst of their transformation, then that's, we can find those. Those are plentiful options. There can, be, there can be a tendency, especially among churches, religious organizations, that tend to operate out of a scarcity mindset. So tell us what you need, and then we'll come help you. Uh, Broadway United Methodist Church, by the way, it's right in Indianapolis. You should totally check this out because it's an amazing church. It's totally turned that on its head. So it used to be people would go to Broadway United Methodist and would say, okay, I'm coming in, you know, it's the end of the month, I need help. And they'd say, well, how much money do you need? And then the person would tell them. And then Pastor Mike Mather started realizing, boy, these are really depressing conversations. We're not really talking to people. We're, we're treating them as if they are needs. And so they went from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And so now when someone comes into Broadway, uh, United Methodist, they might say something like, okay, it's the end of the month, I need money. And, the, and, and Mike will say, well, ho hold on a minute. Tell me three things that you're good at. Tell me three things that you want to learn. And then the conversation changes because you're not just having this conversation about what are you lacking, it's this conversation of what do you have that the community needs. And it was out of conversations like this that multiple businesses started shooting up around Broadway United Methodist Church, around this neighborhood of, of catering businesses and tutoring businesses. So the church originally had this tutoring company going on within the church building. And then they find out that just down the street, Miss, I don't know what her name was, this, this older woman had 25 kids in her house every day and she was tutoring them. And the church went, well, why are we reinventing the wheel here? Let's close our program and let's just resource her. She's got something going on already. So I think sometimes even that mindset, that mindset of moving from a scarcity mindset, what do people need, to abundance, what do we already have going on here that we can tap into, that we can, that we can uh, join in on life with? I think that can make a big difference. Um, this, is kind of, this is kind of been already alluded to, but there seems to be an Iwu community and a Marian community. How can we bridge that gap between the two? How do we bridge the gap? I'm talking a lot here, so take, go, take go. the mic from me. This, the reason I think why I'm hesitating is because it's such a simple answer. Uh -huh. 
And I'm, so I'm trying to think of, is there a profound way to say this? And I don't think there is. If you want to pop the bubble, you have to walk out of it. Uh, I mean, there, the, the Serve Grant, Grant County website that you mentioned is, is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's different ways in which, in which you can be involved, and it is so easy to get caught up. I mean, you guys are busy. I, I know some of the syllabi that you receive, and, and, and you're busy. You have a lot going on, and that's on top of you having lives outside of the Marion community, that your relationships within the dorm, you have more than enough to keep every single minute of your day packed, which is why it's so hard to pop that bubble, to go into the community, because it requires you have to give something up. There's something that you have to stop doing in order to have the time and the space to do something else. And I don't know what that looks like in your lives. For, um, for, okay, this is, is this recording? Because this is me getting vulnerable. Hopefully the person, uh, okay, uh, I'll just say it. <laughs> the brain kitchen started for me when I decided to stop helping a certain person. I had all of my emotional energy wrapped up in trying to fix a particular situation that I couldn't fix. And when I finally stopped, and in some ways admitted failure on that, when I was able to step away from that, then I realized I had all this other energy that I could invest in something that actually mattered to me. That it wasn't just me coming and trying to be a savior somewhere, that I could see where my passions were, were being, uh, stoked and, and follow that path instead. So if, if, you wanna, if you wanna pop that bubble, if you want to help bridge that gap there, what do you, find, find what you need to give up in your own life and spend time discerning from the Lord where God might be directing you. Tom or Brian, you go ahead. Nope. All right, so I know for those who are living in poverty and don't have enough and need help, one of the biggest challenges to seeking that help is a loss of dignity. Uh, so how do we help those who are in need while still protect, protecting their dignity and giving them that uh, sense of honor that they need? So one of the things I um, do at my job, um, there's gentlemen that come in on a regular basis that are just exiting um, an incarceration. And um, something that's so simple to do in that situation is to look them in the eye and treat them like a person and talk to them just like I talk to anyone else. Um, there's you know, a sense of wonder of, okay, what did they do? How did they, you know, end up in jail? What, what drug, you know, anything like that. But um, just, again, treating them like a person speaks volumes. I think I'm another... Gonna, I'm going to answer this question, then I'm going to stop talking for a little bit, because, <laughs> sorry, okay. We don't believe you. I, I know, sorry. Well, I'm going to hand you the mic, and then don't give it back. So the, of, oftentimes, we tend to link dignity with... Uh, what people can prove they deserve. So you, you look at what's going on right now in the government, and I hope you're reading newspapers and paying attention to this, but what's happening to, the, uh, what could potentially happen to childhood meals, ch meals for kids in elementary schools. And a lot of the reports that are coming out right, right now, because they're talking about pulling government funding from meals going to certain elementary school children, and a lot of the reports that are coming out are, well, it, but it doesn't really improve their scores. 
we don't see any links between feeding a child and test scores going up, okay? So the subtext there, if you're reading between the lines, you only deserve food if you're going to be performing well, right? I'm not interested in feeding a child so that their grades go up. That would be wonderful. I'm, I'm interested in feeding a hungry child if the child is hungry. And so to be able to... So if we keep from linking dignity to something that's performance-based, oh, well, well, okay, this person isn't on drugs, so they deserve to eat now. This person gets good grades, so they deserve to eat now. But to, if we could have some basic understanding of what dignity means, food, shelter, that's regardless of anything performance-based, I think that's a start in offering mm -hmm. dignity. I would add to that just to say that uh, I think it takes a little more creativity uh, on our parts to design systems differently because a lot of times the unintended message of a lot of the ways in which we give things away for free is you have nothing to offer to this exchange. Again, it comes oftentimes out of a very generous place, um, but again, if we're going to ask a person, you know, as Mandy mentioned at this church, uh, their question then is turned to what are three things you can do well and three things you want to learn. If we can build on people's resourcefulness and, and what they do have to offer, then that's a really different kind of exchange. Some of the families, I, I think your question is great because the, the toll, the emotional toll of poverty is sometimes overlooked, especially as it relates to a person's sense of capableness. So we really need to rethink some of the giveaway kinds of models that we all are invested in and rather think of how do we create access and ask for them to give something to it too because that creates dignity. And that takes a little more creative work and honestly it takes a little more investment from us because it's a lot simpler to just give it away for free and, and pat ourselves on the back for doing our good deed for society. I think these are all uh, wonderful answers. I think I just want to maybe underscore, I think eye contact is super important and really building a friendship. So uh, Father Boyle, who wrote Tattoos on the Heart, I'm going to mess up the quote, but he talked about Jesus really not taking the right stand on issues. He, took, he stood with people. He didn't stand for women's rights. He stood with women. Mm -hmm. He didn't uh, take the right stand on adultery or prostitution. He just stood with them. And one of the things that I think is so simple is eating meals, opening our homes, perhaps uh, what uh, Mandy was talking about earlier with the basketball player. Whatever way it works, when we just eat together, I think we see we have so much in common. We start building some kind of friendship even if it's going to have, uh, we're going to have to worry about some of the reciprocity and how that all might work. But I think just eating a meal with somebody or one thing that just happened to me last week where I almost blew it and thanks to my wife I didn't, I went into an apartment that is, uh, I didn't want to sit. It was so filthy and uh, covered in feces and... Uh, smashed Pop-Tarts, cats are on the Pop-Tarts. Uh, it's completely saturated with smoke. And I was standing, I didn't think about it. We were waiting for someone to come out. And Jody said to me, sit down. Like I needed to sit on their couch because I wasn't showing respect. Or if they offer you something to drink, 
take the water. Just little kinds of things where my ideas of purity or that's gross, I need to get over that. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's ways in which I could have robbed somebody's uh, dignity or hurt them or harmed them or uh, insulted them just unintentionally. And so the more we can just think of them as friends, eating meals together, those kinds of things, I think that helps. One thing that Matthew Desmond said that I really loved was that social holiness is for everybody, not just for social workers or missionaries or pastors. Um, and I recognize that some of you guys are social workers or pastors, but you're also, you know, wives and, and mothers and husbands and homeowners and all this other stuff. So how do we, um, thinking as a college student, it's very difficult to imagine how to engage with poverty, not as a social worker or a pastor, like how we can do this in our daily lives. And I think you've been doing this already, sharing some personal examples, but I would love to just get our imaginations going, get our creativity going and hear from you guys how you, in your personal lives, not as pastors or social workers, how you engage with poverty. Um, so we can have some examples to follow as we, as we graduate and as we leave. I think a big one is where, where will you choose to live? Oh. Rusty? Uh, I, again, a lot of times we don't, uh, our lives don't intersect because of the places that we choose to live. And I want to, another thing that Matt Desmond said was, you know, and Rusty mentioned this earlier, that we can't have, how can we have deep communion with God and uh, always have our bellies full and our streets safe? And so where will you choose to live? Uh, are you going to adopt the, the common model of, you know, this is what my means can afford and I'm going to live in this particular neighborhood? Or will you consider a mixed income neighborhood or a lower income neighborhood and live there? Because um, there's a difference between knowing of the poor and knowing the poor. And it all, where will you naturally intersect? And a really obvious place of natural intersection is the place you choose as your home. If I could just piggyback real quickly on that. We, we spend a tremendous amount of time, especially during these, these years you're in right now, um, praying about what we're going to do, um, praying about um, who we're going to marry, who we're not going to marry, praying about, um, if we pray about where we're going to live, it's, it's generally thought of in terms of you know, is it going to be Seattle or is it going to be Miami? But we don't think about um, where in those cities are we going to live. So I think that's my soapbox. You're laughing already. I think there's something important about being willing to sit in tension without fixing anything right away. I remember one of our, one of our alumni here I was in a conversation with him, and we were talking about racism, and he said, you know, my freshman year, we heard so much about race relations at Indiana Wesleyan. I just kept hearing stories, and I just felt so bad. And he said, and I finally asked, well, okay, tell me, who is it that I'm supposed to apologize to? I'll say it. And he said, but no one could tell me where to go to. And he just kind of shrugged, and that was the end of the conversation for him. And I know that this guy was well-intended, but what I wish he would have done is I wished he would have sat in that tension a bit longer. Because it's oftentimes when we are sitting in that kind of tension that these new creative ideas come out. 
It's a lot easier to hear something that makes us feel bad, to uh, say quick words to fix it. It's a lot easier to have a service of lament than, uh, than empowering relationships that actually change things. So I'm going to paraphrase Sharon Garlow Brown, who, who talks about the need to linger over what agitates you, knowing that the Holy Spirit is there hovering above. So those things that get to you, that really make your heart churn, as nice as it would be to quick do something and check that box off and feel better about it, if you can sit in that tension and be okay with that kind of pain, I think you'll be surprised at the kinds of ideas that come out. And we need young people to do that. Uh, we, we've got our ideas, but there are certain things that the Holy Spirit says that you guys are better able to hear than we are. Uh, so that would be my invitation is to find those things that bother you and sit in that tension and don't be afraid of that pain and keep your ears open to see where and how the Holy Spirit might be leading you. I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget everything when I came up here. Um, one of my friends from home's family fosters teenagers that come straight out of jail. And one of the biggest problems that they face is kids trying to run away. Um, she tells me that it isn't nearly as much a problem for kids that didn't come out of jail and into the foster care system. And that's really hard for me to understand because most of the time it seems like they're running back to the broken homes and less than desirable neighborhoods that they came from. Um, why do these kids that are in a way being offered a fresh start cycle back to these places? I guess what I'm asking is, how do we help the kids that grew up in these areas and think that's where they belong? I think Mandy had the self-imposed silence, so if, if someone else wants to take it. <laughs> I think you're, the way you ended it, this is a question about belonging. Mm -hmm. And um, even in the midst of struggle and hardship, those things are formative, those things shape us. You said, how, how do we help them stop running back to the environments where they came from? Uh, no matter where it is that we came from, that's where we're from. <laughs> and there's identity caught up in a collection of people, in, in the relationships, in a culture. And a lot of times what we're asking people to do is switch cultures, sets of values, uh, familiarity with all range of things. And, and though we may, again, want good for them and be offering this with sincerity, we oftentimes overlook um, the culture, the values that they grew up with and were familiar with and the people that they loved in the midst of the hardship. And uh, so I think it really begins with hearing their stories well, honoring their, e even though we would put a different label on that experience as that's, that's you know, that's a bad neighborhood. Uh, you know, there's something there that was for them and shaped them. And yeah, how do we help them understand, how do we honor the way in which their belonging was affirmed in another place? is a piece of that. And the question is really complex, especially when you're dealing with the range of things where it's coming out of prison. And again, there's, I'm sure that there are a whole other dynamics too, but belonging and culture, honoring the culture and the place that they've been is, will be a really important part. I would just respond, the, um, the sociologist Ed Banfield 
long ago wrote a book called The Unheavenly City, and then uh, follow up The Unheavenly City Revisited. And he defined poverty in this cultural way, uh, very different than most people define poverty or class. He said it's not about wealth or income, it's about whether you are future-oriented or short-term oriented in your thinking. And often a poverty culture will cause people to be very short-term oriented and, and, and they will return to that, as you're expressing, they will return to what is comfortable and that short-term orientation will create a kind of vicious cycle that will not allow them to see their way out of that situation and plan for the future accordingly. I think it's very important, and his, his research has been confirmed uh, again and again over and over, that you're not rich or poor based upon how much money you have, what your salary is, or how much wealth you own. That is a byproduct of culturally how much emphasis you place on future orientation as opposed to kind of short-termism that poverty kind of grinds you into. So to the extent that you know, there's any answer to, to your question, from my point of view, it's, it's in influencing people to become more future-oriented and kind of breaking that view that, they, that they're only thinking about their next meal or where, where their next uh, little piece of morsel of survival is going to come from and thinking beyond that and helping them understand that once they do that, regardless of what their income is, they are now upper class mm. in a sense. They, they are now part of uh, those who have the opportunity to succeed because they have broken out or can try to break out, if you can help them break out of that short-term cultural thinking. And so your question just brings to mind Banfield's work and I would mention that in response. Believe, <laughs> Believe it or not, we, we, are, we are out of time. I, um, I know, I, I'm sorry. Um, for those of you who are still waiting, but can, if I can volunteer the time of our panelists, um, I think that, that the questions that you have for them are ones that they would love to, to still entertain. So if you can find them, um, I, I think that we could invite you to have conversations with them. Hey, before you all run away, this is a history-making chapel, so let's not all sprint out right at the end. Let's, uh, let's wait and have a prayer first. Can we do that? We can pray and then we can, and then we can go. Dr. Drury, would you pray for us? All right. As we pray, the first 30 seconds, I want to ask you a question. It's a question from Oscar Romero, and I'm going to use his words to enter us into a time of prayer. So if you will, bow your heads with me. And hear these words from the priest Oscar Romero before we bring these petitions before the Lord. Oscar Romero says, You say you love the poor. Name them. And in just a few seconds here, I would invite you to pray silently, asking God to bring to mind the people that you know who are poor and see if you can name them. Lord, some of us have had multiple names running through our minds these past few seconds. And there are some of us here as well who were surprised that we did not have any names running through our minds. Lord, I pray that you will open up our eyes that you would give us the discernment to know where to focus our energies, our times, our friendships. And Lord, I pray, that, I pray that we would become engaged in matters of poverty and inequality, uh, not out of some abstract, obscure idea of justice, but simply because we love you and we love people. 
that is our prayer, Lord, and it's the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.